The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There was a single mom named Julia. She had two kids, and she moved across the country to a place that was pretty much wilderness. See, this was in the 19th century, the 1800s, and it's a time when people were still settling in places that was pretty much just frontier. And so she took her two kids, they traveled about 1,200 miles, and she had bought some acreage in a place that was pretty much nothing else but just a trading post, but her acreage was along this river. And so when she settled there, there was an old um, abandoned fort that she bought, and she lived there with her kids. And she moved there because she saw, even though it was pretty much just wilderness around there with just a couple other buildings, she believed that it had the potential and the opportunity to become a full-fledged town or maybe even a city. And so her idea was that if she could just get one of the railroads. It's a time in our history when railroads are crisscrossing our country. If she could just get a railroad to lay down, one of the, one of the big companies to lay, lay down tracks to go through this area along this river, if she could just do that, then this uh, town would boom. The settlement would turn into a town and then it would boom. That, she just knew that's the one thing she needed to do. So she kept contacting these railroad companies saying, would you bring a rail through here? And they kept saying, why would we go there? It's just wilderness. It's practically just a jungle of mangroves and palm trees and mosquitoes. Why would we possibly go down there? But this woman, Julia Tuttle, settling on the Miami River, she believed otherwise. In 1895, a freeze came over Florida and froze all the citrus crops through middle Florida. And it froze almost the entire crops of Florida except down in the tropical climate around the Miami River. And so Julia Tuttle wasted no time. She contacted one of the railroad tycoons, a guy named Henry Flagler, and said, Hey, there's, um, there's citrus that's not frozen down here. And I know the rest of the state is, is uh, got, got frozen crops, but would you reconsider sending your railroad down here, this tropical climate, has value, and so he sent his two chief lieutenants. They came down here, surveyed uh, Julia Tuttle's claims, and sure enough, they came back laden with all this thriving citrus, and he sent her a telegram that simply said, Madam, what do you propose? And she said, well, let me talk to my neighbors across the river who run the trading post, William and Mary Brickle, and let me see if the Brickles will give half of their acreage, and then I'll give half of my acreage, and we'll give that to you, Mr. Flagler, if you bring the railway down, and he agreed, and he built a railroad down within a few months, and in the middle of 1895, about 350 people decided to make their little settlement into a city, the city of Miami. And all that was built on this one woman, Julia Tuttle, who is um, known as the mother of Miami, rightfully so. Because she had a vision of a city that could be. But I want you to see what she had. It was more than just a vision. Because a vision, it's not just a big idea. Like, hey, what if this happened? 
I mean, she moved her, her two kids 1,200 miles from Cleveland down to this jungle of South Florida because she believed like that much. She was that convinced by the vision. She had something more than vision. She had expectancy. It, it's more than just vision. Like that could be. In fact, that should be. It was more like her expectancy was more like it must be, it will be. And she kept hounding these railroad companies until they came down. Because, see, we see the city of Miami like this. I mean, this is how we know the city of Miami. I mean, that, that's what we think of right there by the Miami River. I mean, that's what we think of about the city of Miami. But when Julia Tuttle got here, it looked closer to something like this right there in this same area. Just a jungle with a couple small structures. She was a woman of vision, but more than that, a woman of expectancy. I wonder if there's a measure of expectancy, more than vision. But I wonder if, as we're talking about what is God calling us to do together as a church, I wonder if he's calling us to more than vision, but this assurance and this expectancy. Not just, what if it happened? But it, it must happen. And it will happen. What could be released if we had more than vision, but, but had that level of expectancy? Through this series, we're going to walk through a book called Haggai. If you would, go ahead and open in your Bibles or your Bible app to the book of Haggai. If you're not sure where Haggai is, it's right near Habakkuk. Hopefully that helps you right in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. It's right there. Just use your concordance. We don't judge you, okay? The book of Haggai is a small uh, book. It's a prophet. It's two chapters, and it actually pairs with the book of Zechariah. These are two prophets that prophesied about the same time, and this is, even though this is thousands of years old, this has been meticulously preserved for us And it is the words of the Lord. It is powerful. It has teeth even for us today. And I believe God wants to speak through this book to stir something in us. Haggai chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1. Here's what it says. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. All right, now let's get the context here. It just gave us a bunch of names. Let's figure out where in the world and where in history is this book of Haggai situated? Let's just get some context. It gives you some names. Uh, first of all, Haggai is the prophet. He and uh, Zechariah are going to be prophesying at this time. He's the prophet. The priest at the time, the high priest, is a guy by the name, name of Joshua. And the governor, the one who rules over this area, is a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, which is one of the most fun names to say in all the Old Testament. I think we should say that together, don't you think we should say that together? Okay, on three. One, two, three. Zerubbabel. Well done. If you are expecting a child, like a son, and you're looking for a name, 
Zerubbabel would be fun for the rest of us. <laughs> we, we would appreciate if you consider that. Um, in fact, um, if it wasn't for the fact that my wife and I are expecting a daughter, <laughs> this world could have had a Zerubbabel Barnes. <laughs> and that really rolls off the tongue nicely. So Zerubbabel is the governor of the area. And then there is the king, Darius. He's the king of Persia. Now let me just situate this story for you. Persia is the, uh, the superpower of the world. Before them was the Babylonians. It was the Babylonians that went through Judah and Jerusalem, God's people. And when they were so far from God, he lifted his hand of protection off of them that the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem destroyed their wall, destroyed their houses, and even more horrifyingly destroyed the temple of the Lord. Took all of the people back to Babylon and left them in exile. They were stuck there in Babylon. That's when guys like Daniel served in Nebuchadnezzar's court and guys like Jeremiah were prophesying. Well, uh, a, a little while later, the Persians rose up, conquered Babylon, and they had a different rule. They would send people back to their homeland. So they sent people back to Jerusalem, led by a guy named Ezra. They arrived back in um, Jerusalem. They started rebuilding their houses, and they laid the foundation for the temple. This is before another guy named Nehemiah came. This, is, this book of Haggai happens before Nehemiah comes back and builds the wall. All that's happening now is they've laid the foundation for the temple, and they've started building their houses, and they're repopulating it. The problem is they started rebuilding the temple and stopped. And years started to pass by. And it was just a foundation and rubble. And so God speaks to them through Haggai, and in this verse he says, this people says it's not time to build the house of the Lord. Well, we'll get to it. I mean, we'll do it one of these days. I mean, that's a big project. I mean, we'll, we'll get there at some point. And they're saying, it's not time. Well, look what the Lord says to them. Let's jump in at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Man, this passage has teeth. God says, 
through Haggai. Well, first of all, did you notice how God keeps referring to himself as the Lord of hosts? Did you notice that repeatedly? That's his military name, Jehovah Sabaoth. That means the Lord of the armies of heaven. And he's saying to them, he says, you say that it's not time to build my house while you're living in paneled houses. In other words, paneled houses is like an ancient way of describing a luxurious house. He says, you're, you're, you're busy, busy, busy yourself with building your houses. He says, but my house is still in ruins. And he says, but my house is built for my glory, God says. He's kind of leaving it open. So what is your house built for? And he says, do you think that I'm going to be happy with this arrangement? That you've built your own houses, but not the house of your God. He says, do you think I'm going to bless that? Do you think I'm going to take pleasure in this arrangement? You're saying it's not time. And God is saying, I, I beg to differ. Now, to understand the real, the real power and urgency of what God's saying, we have to understand the, what the presence of the temple meant for their city and really for their nation. There's only one temple built to God. Solomon had built it. And there's only this one temple, and it houses the tangible presence of God. Like he, he allowed his presence to be tied to the temple. How did it work? There was these outer courts and inner courts. There was this holy place that only priests went into, and then there was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, where the high priest would only go in once a year to sprinkle blood onto the Ark of the Covenant. And if any other priest or anyone else went in on the wrong time of year, it says they would be struck dead because God had chosen to allow His presence to be tied to that Holy of Holies and especially to that Ark of the Covenant, which was this box overlaid with gold with these angels on top of it bowing uh, before the presence of God. And to give you an idea of how the presence of God worked with this Ark of the Covenant. There was this time well before Solomon, well before his father, King David. Um, there was a time before that when the people of God had been disobeying God. They were far from him. Their spiritual leaders were guys named uh, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were way far from God and they went out to battle. And even though they're so far from God, they had the audacity to carry the Ark of the Covenant out to battle with them, thinking that God would, they could just kind of manipulate God into blessing them. And they carried it out. The, the way you carried the Ark of the Covenant was very specifically prescribed in Scripture. Moses wrote it down in the law. It was only Levites carried it. They had these, these special poles that went through these rungs, and they would carry it on their shoulders with that much reverence. They brought it out into the battlefield. God's like, I, I'm not going to bless you in this, in this battle. And they were defeated by the Philistines. And to their absolute horror, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant brought it back to their city, Ashdod. And if that wasn't bad enough, they brought it into their pagan idolatrous temple, the temple of Dagon, and placed it before him as spoils of war to communicate, we defeated God's people and our God defeated their God. Now, can you imagine this? This is a statue that they made and they're claiming that statue defeated the living God who breathes planets and galaxies out of his mouth. They woke up the next morning and their statue, Dagon, 
was laying down on its face before the Ark of the Covenant, like it was worshiping it. They said, oh, well, that's not right. And they hoisted the statue back up. Now, can you just think of the irony here for a second? This is the statue. They're saying, you are our God. You are going to protect us and give us everything we need. It's just that you're not powerful enough to stand up on your own. So that was completely lost on them. They set the statue back up. Okay, everything's the way it's supposed to be. The next morning they come in. The statue has lain back down, fallen down again, and this time its head and its hands have been cut off. Now, I want to make sure you understand, it's not that they broke off. The Bible's clear on this. They were cut off, laying, on the, laying off to the side. If you've ever seen an ancient uh, Greek statue, like maybe in a museum or a picture of it, sometimes you see it without its head. Often, that's not just wear and tear. That's because an enemy went through the city, decapitating symbolically the statues of their gods. It was a thing. And God is demonstrating, I'm not conquered by anybody. Their statues had its head decapitated and hands broken off. So they say, well, that's not good. And what ended up happening, even though they did not really catching the hint, they didn't release the Ark of the Covenant to where it's supposed to be. And God let plagues break out all throughout um, Philistia. So they eventually said, oh, what are we supposed to do with this? They don't know any better, so they put it on a cart, attached two milk cows to it, and said, maybe God will send it home, and the cows take this cart, just bumping the Ark of the Covenant in the back of it, all the way back to Israel, they, and all of Israel rejoices. Now, a couple decades later, David has now been crowned king. He defeats Jerusalem. He makes it his capital city, and he says, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem because it's the presence of God. And so they said, yeah, let's do it. And so they get the Ark of the Covenant, but the problem was they handled it far too casually and far too flippantly. You know what they did? Did they get the Levites to put the posts through it and carry it in with reverence and, and all of the, the sanctity that, was belong, that belongs to the Ark of the Covenant? No. They built a cart, put two oxen in front of it, and tried to cart it into Jerusalem like Philistines. This box that the living God has uniquely decided to tie his presence to is bouncing around on the stone and, and uh, dirt roads all the way into Jerusalem. And to make matters worse, worse, just completely having no reverence for what it is, at one point one of the oxen stumble and Uzzah, who's driving the car, is like, oh no, and he puts his hand back to steady the Ark of the Covenant. He ch touches it and God strikes him dead. And that gets their attention. And, they, and David says, let's just leave the ark here and back away slowly. They don't know what to do. They leave it at a guy's house named Obed-Edom. Can you imagine being that guy? <laughs> we'll, we'll watch it for you. Okay, we got it. We got it. Just put it in the garage and no one look at it. Okay, let's not even touch that thing. Okay? And so for three months, Obed-Edom has the Ark of the Covenant at his house. And you know what happens for three months? Everything he touches is blessed by God. Not a surprise that the phone rings and it's King David. This time, they have a, another sense of the reverence for the presence of God. They make sacrifices. They appropriately carry it in. 
to Jerusalem. Eventually, David's son Solomon builds a temple. They bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And while Solomon is praying, lightning comes from the sky, ignites the sacrifice, smoke fills the presence of the temple, and the priests have to run for their lives because God is establishing uniquely his presence inside his house, his temple. Now let me ask you, with that context for what the presence of God is, it's not, you don't tame the presence of God. It's not tame. You don't manipulate it. You don't coerce it. You don't harness it. It is the living God that we surrender to. But with the presence of God, it brings blessing and flourishing to that city. He blessed that city, Jerusalem. Why would that not be the number one priority? Why would they have an attitude of, ah, we'll get to the temple. Yeah, yeah, presence of God, got it. But I'm putting panels on my houses. And he said, you have a priority issue, Jerusalem. He says, first of all, there's a worship problem. You're building your own house while my house lies in ruins is the first thing. And then secondly, he says, it's a practical problem. Don't you realize the presence of God causes this city to flourish? You think it's not time, and God is saying, it is time. It is time. Well, what's going to be their response? Let's finish off chapter 1. Then then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I want you to read this underlined part with me. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. I I love this section. It's so beautiful. They heard the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord of hosts. And what did they do? They feared him, and they got to work. And I love what it says. It says, The spirit was stirred. Stirred in Zerubbabel. Stirred in Joshua. Stirred in Haggai. It's stirred. It says in every single one of the people. They were all stirred and they got to work. And the Lord gave them one simple message in response. And it's all that they needed to hear. I am with you. That's all you really need. Church, I I wonder if there's something that God wants to stir in us. More than just some ideas that we all like. But a conviction that gets stirred up. And not just a conviction of your pastors, who are the messengers that are called to bring the word of the Lord to you. Not just among your your pastors, not just among your leaders, the elders and the leadership team, not not just uh, among your staff, 
but it's something that's to be stirred in every last one of us as a church. I believe God wants to stir something in us. And let me just be transparent for a second. I believe this so much that he wants to stir something in you that you see this. This is not just the vision of my church. This is the vision on my life. I believe this so much. Then the middle of the night, the Lord woke me up and would not let me go to sleep until I prayed over each of you that you would feel this stirring on your life. I wonder if he wants to stir something up where we say, it is time. It's time now. That we look at our lives and say, what are my priorities? It can be nothing less than, than letting the presence of God be released in this city and watch what happens. Could that stir in each one of us, church? But to understand this, we've got to know with precision clarity what it is that we're building. Because I, I want to be clear on this. We're not building a building. That's not our ultimate goal is to build a building. The temple on the, this side of Jesus Christ takes on completely different shape. Can I show you what the scripture says in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3.16? Can, can you just hear these words and, and, and just dare to believe this? Just dare to believe what the scripture says to you. Look what it says. Do you not know that you are God's what? You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Can you be shocked by that, Christian? The Spirit of the living God, the presence of God, that when it dwelt, that when it descended on the temple, sent lightning from the sky and smoke flooding through, making the priests run for their lives, that the very same Spirit that brought plagues upon God's enemies and brought their idols to their knees, the very same Spirit that led His city, His holy city, to flourish, the very same Spirit that hovered over the waters of primordial creation and then spawned it into the universe, the same Spirit dwells in you. You are a temple. Do you believe that? You say, man, I don't know, man. You don't know me. Can I remind you how that happened? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth. Offered himself as the once for all time sacrifice. Was hanged on a cross. Crucified and died. Why? Taking all of your sin, past, present, and future. Taking it on himself and exhausting the wrath of God on himself, leaving you washed clean, then imputed onto you, placed onto you his perfect righteousness so that when God sees you, he sees you as if you are perfectly clean, having the righteousness of Christ, and so that his Holy Spirit can dwell inside of you. You are a temple housing the Spirit of God. Can you dare to believe that? Imagine the implications of that. Christian, do you realize 
what does the Bible say that we're building? Listen to what it says in 1 Peter. What are we doing here as a church? What are we giving ourselves to our lives to? This time, side of eternity, what are we saying? This is our priority to build. Look what it says. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is it that we're doing? We're not building a brand or a building. What we're doing is we're building the living stones that make his house throughout the city. You are a stone. You yourself make up the temple. And so he's placed you in, as one of the stones that make up the house, the presence of God. So you are one of those stones and you are placed at the fire station that you work and the police station that you work and at the school that you go to and the school you drop your kids off of and the school you work at. You're placed in that neighborhood and you're placed in that friend group and that family. You and I are placed throughout the city housing the presence of God, releasing that power so that through us, idols are brought to their knees. The enemies of God are held back. And the flourishing power of the Holy Spirit can be, be upon our city. See, what we say is we're here to make disciples. That's our mission. We use that original Greek word, mathetes. Full throttle, hold nothing back, surrender everything to Jesus Christ. Say, it's not about my dreams and my visions and my plans, Jesus. It's whatever you have for me to do. I give you everything, walking in your footsteps, sacrificing all in your footsteps this side of heaven. We're, making, we're here to make disciples because when we send out disciples, the presence of God is going into the city that the city may flourish. That's what we're doing together. It's time. And Haggai is confronting our priorities. This time last year, we launched a vision initiative called Extravagant. And we said we are, realize we are extravagantly loved as a people of God. And so we want to extravagantly love, love this city. And so we said we are going to take steps, initial steps, to see this city transformed by the power of the gospel in our generation. And so step one, we said we've got to start with our children. We, we, are, we have a bottleneck in, in ministering to our children. We need to expand our kids' space. And so this time last year, we had three steps to take. But step one this past year, step one is done. Step one, we knocked out together. Yeah, let's celebrate that t- together. Step one serving our children, expanding our kids' space. And so since then, behind the scenes, we've been aggressively going after step two, which is to establish another campus somewhere in our city. We're still uh, preparing for that, researching where that right spot is, discerning where that spot is. But we need another location to help us pump out as an engine, cranking out these mathetes that are housing the presence of God and going out to transform this city. And then step three, down the road, will be establish a new hub campus that's broadcasting to the other campuses somewhere in a strategic location. And so today, I want to share with you a step we are taking in the next few weeks in preparation for step two. Um, This came about because, as you know, especially here at our 1030 service, uh, we are at capacity. We're at capacity in this campus, in this this service, and so we said we're going to have to start um, opening up overflow 
And so he said, instead of just opening up overflow in the multipurpose room, what if we opened up a temporary pilot campus in our multipurpose room? And so we set to work renovating that space, making it into a worship environment. We've been calling through several of our leaders and saying, we want to ask you to commit to six months or nine months or a year to make that the campus you worship at. Of course, your kids will be at the kids' space. We want you to worship at that campus, and we want you to be the pioneers helping us um, as we're beginning steps into establishing another campus. And so dozens have already said, I'm interested in doing that, and I want to cast that vision, church, to you as well, especially you here in the 1030 service. Our goal is that 75 to 100 people say, yes, I want to be a part of that pioneer uh, campus. And so uh, what it's going to look like in there is there's going to be a, a live band. We're going to be raising up a band, raising up a tech team, raising up greeters, full-fledged worship service there. Um, we're going to be able to work out um, all of our philosophy on how to do that, practice doing the video teaching there. And so we want to call on us as a church for some to uh, make the commitment to make that their campus for the next Um, for the next several months. I want you to write this down. This is the ask of this morning. I want you to write this date down. April 2nd at 7 p.m. We're having a launch party. I want to invite you out. It's going to be in the multi-purpose room, and it's an opportunity for some of you to say, yes, I want to be a part of that campus. So here's the exciting news. We are basically launching our first campus. It's our north campus. Okay? It's all the way 15 feet over there, okay? And we are on our way, and so I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Well, it's because of of this. Let me share with you this this quote. There was a a survey we took last week, and there was a, a person that added this, and they said this, I thank Jesus for bringing me to live in Florida. So I could hear the gospel according to scripture at West Pines Community Church and receiving Jesus as my Savior. Coming to West Pines has transformed my life and my family's. Praise God for West Pines. Did you hear that story? We live in a part of the world that people travel through for seasons of their life. Or they travel to. Can you just imagine with me if this city was changed, South Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale? If it wasn't just the bare bones of a foundation of only 3 to 4% that were con that were committed Christians, but it wasn't just that foundation, but we were part of a movement that built up the house of the Lord. Can you imagine what could happen? If as people come through South Florida, they encounter such a mighty presence of God through the local churches in South Florida that they leave and go back home ignited by the gospel, because that wouldn't just change South Florida, because if you transform South Florida... You impact the world. I want you to take a look at the story of something that happened this past year and see what the work that God has done through your church. Check this out.
I came to West Pine as a guest from my family. My brother Julio and my sister-in-law Priscilla invited me. We always wanted to respect her timing and she had been reading her Bible. She, we had been exchanging ideas and impressions on things. But that morning was special because she just said, look, I feel like I'm ready. She wanted to be baptized. And I was the very first one on, on the line. I, I, I really didn't even know what to expect, what to do, how is the dynamic into getting baptized. But then, right there, you know, on my right was my family, Julio, Priscilla, Neri, and Diana. They were kind of, I mean, the happiness in their faces, uh, approving of what I was doing, you know, cheering me up. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And I, I've never seen so many strangers being happy for my sake. When, when my brother Julio drove me back to the airport, uh, I told him, pray for me, because the beauty of having experienced West Pines is staying here when I get on the plane. And he told me something, and that was like, you're not going alone. You have to think of us as your family. And now you're bringing Jesus in your heart. And he's gonna be your best traveling companion on this journey. That, that was so big for me. My sister Minnie lives in Halden, Norway. The environment is beautiful. The uh, landscapes are just uh, breathtaking. The, the fjords, the, the small town has a fort that dates from the 1500s and People are friendly, it's a welcoming community in many ways. Now, the um, spiritual element is not there. Coming from Norway, we, we don't display our faith in public. And you keep it to yourself, you don't display it. on Sundays. And church is we are only open once or twice a month. And there are no more services. And if there is no service, the church is closed. There is no that openness to say, we pray or God bless you or pray for me. We, we don't do that. Having the access to the online services makes a whole world of difference to me because it is my connection to, to my family and have helped me experience the love that Jesus describes in his words through a community like West Pines. During my last visit to Florida, I, I was so lucky because my, my brother Julio happened to be leading a small group that Friday night. And it was of, uh, of a great inspiration to see how it really takes some effort, but it is not a, a major effort to gather 
and, and pray together and, and, and be united in faith. So I was so motivated to, to make a replica of the dynamics of that small group uh, from West Pines and bring it back with me to Norway. And when I came back, I called in, I sent an invitation to 12 friends from church and I was surprised because everyone, actually everyone who I sent the invitation to came and we engaged in a, in a very interesting uh, discussion about faith. So a message to my family in church at West Pines is that our mission to transform with the gospel the south part of Florida and impact the world, it's actually happening and I am the living proof of that. Minnie, we don't know if you're watching today or that this service, we know you're watching today, we don't know if it's this service, but we just want you to know we love you. You're our sister, you're part of our church family. We're proud of you, and we know that the Holy Spirit is there with you, and we're behind you, we're praying for you. Church, can I stir something in you today? Can I stir something in you that you would leave here today not just saying, I like the vision of my church, but you'd say this is the vision over my life that my priority is that I might see the presence of God released in this city. That's what you've called me to do. I'm not going to build my own house before I see the bricks of the house of God, the very temples of God, the presence of God released as Mathetes in South Florida. Could that be our priority and our vision? You know, we began our time today talking about a, a woman who had vision and expectancy for her city, but how could anyone have more vision and more expectancy than the people of God? Do you know who is saying to you, I am with you? Christian, do you know who said, I, I will never leave you or forsake you? Do you know who it is that is going with you as you're sent out from here back into the city? Do you know who's going with you? It is none other than Jehovah Sabaoth. It is the Lord of the armies of heaven. It is the Lord of hosts. That is who is going with you. And if it is His vision, surely He will see it come to fruition because Jesus stopped His disciples before a pagan temple and He looked at them and He said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Church, what we're talking about is not just something that could be. Not just something that should be. It's something that must be. It's something that will be in this city. Can we all carry the stirring of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we may see this city transformed in our generation and by transforming South Florida may we see the world impacted may we be a part of something truly historic but some of you are here or watching online and you say that story of many that's my story and you may be here saying I want to put my faith in Jesus for the first time I want to do that today. I want my sins washed clean by the power of the cross. And I want, to, I want to have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me, guiding my life. Take that step today. Don't wait another week, another day, another minute. Take that step today and join the armies of Jesus to extravagantly love this city.
If that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Would everyone bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're watching online, just bow your heads where you're at. If that's you, just right there in your seat, just make this prayer your prayer. Jesus, thank you. Just silently in your heart to say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross to save me. I know you washed away my sin, and I believe you rose again from the dead so that I can spend eternity in heaven. I surrender to you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.